Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue in our study of this text. You'll notice in your bulletin that it says we're going to be looking at verses 20 through, through 22 through 24, and that is not true. We will be getting through chapter, excuse me, through verse 22 only today, and I think you'll understand that in just a moment. I am... Uh, I am, the only word is overwhelmed week in and week out in studying the, the book of Ephesians. I, I, I think I've come to a point where, you know, looking at my age and looking at my ministry and saying, I probably, whatever I preach through probably won't be preached through again. Um, and so it's just very humbling to say, you know, you have kind of one trip to the Grand Canyon. You want to get every view possible, and I feel that way in the book of Ephesians. We'll be looking at isolating our attention to verse 22 today, but I think you'll understand it. You'll it'll be better served by understanding it in the greater context. So let me begin by reading verse 17 to 24, verses 17 through 24. Actually, I'm going to go back to verse 1 and then come to 17, Okay. Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So walk worthy of the Lord. Then number 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or live no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We'll be looking today and in the coming weeks at a summons for a new life. A summons for a new life. Throughout my ministry as a pastor, I have noticed something as well as, as a student in theological studies, that there are experts in different dimensions and different fields of the Christian faith. Different subjects of the Christian faith have, have solicited experts who know those fields as well as anyone. Some of these we've had at Mission Road Bible Church. For example, Tom Schreiner is an expert in the area of New Testament studies, and we've been blessed to hear of his expertise. Dr. Daniel Block, an expert in Old Testament studies, and we've been able to be, be under his ministry as well. Dr. Bruce Ware in systematic theology. Dr. George Zimmick, my personal mentor in the faith in exegetical theology. It's wonderful to hear someone who's an expert in a certain area talk about those areas, right? It's natural. It's easy to look at these experts or these scholars 
and be rightfully impressed and maybe even a little intimidated by their knowledge of these subjects. But how about you? Do you consider yourself to be an expert on any area of the Christian faith? Now think about that. Are you an expert on something in the Christian faith? A better question is this. Do you sense any need to develop expertise in any area of Christianity? Well, you should. You should. God expects that you have a thorough and working understanding that you be an expert about something in the Christian faith that's at the heart of the gospel itself. What should you be an expert in? This is the doctrine and practice of repentance. You are called by God to be an expert on the subject of repentance. Let me give you a little background. This is very interesting to me. You know the story. Paul goes into Athens. He's shocked by um, the, uh, uh, the pluralism of the religious worship that he sees. He goes to the temple, as we'll read here in a moment, and finds an, an interesting inscription to an unknown God. And the uh, situation, the scene is played out by Luke in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, where we read, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, little outcropping, uh, rock outcropping off of the, their, their uh, temple mount where they would have trials and debates. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship up on the hill, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own prophets have even said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Did you hear that, verse 30? It's quite a statement. God is now declaring, Paul says, to all men everywhere that they should repent. It's the central call from heaven to earth. It's the central call of the gospel to repent. All people everywhere 
are called to repent. Now, consequently, understanding repentance is fundamental to the Christian faith. So let me ask you again. If all men everywhere are called to repent, are you an expert on repentance? If God is shouting from heaven to you to repent, do you know what it is? Are you an expert on it? If God expects you to be a repenter and repentant, are you adept at what repentance is and how do you do it? In short, let me just go to the end. Repentance is not that difficult to understand. Repentance means to change. It's a change of mind, which issues forth in a change of behavior. To repent means to change. So you could say God is calling to all men everywhere, change, which is quite a statement about our state before him, isn't it? You need to change. Specifically, make a change to both your thinking and to your behaving. Now, this raises a few questions. Do you have a thorough biblical understanding of what repentance or what change is? Let's say that a sweet little girl from our junior high department, a 13-year-old comes to you, no matter who you are, and says, can you just give me a five-minute lesson on how I can change? Do you have an answer? Do you have an actionable conviction to change or repent? Are, are you a repenter? Several years ago, I was, well, my first trip, actually, when I went to Russia, the Baptist church that I was able to be in for the week had a baptism service, and they didn't say, we are now baptizing new believers. They said, we want to welcome these repenters into our fellowship. Repentance was so inextricably linked to salvation. Do you have an actionable conviction to change, to repent? And do you possess a plan for change? Do you know how to change? Do you know how to repent? Well, Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24 provide a simple, clear blueprint for understanding biblical change. Though interestingly, the word repent doesn't show up in these verses, neither does the word change. But the idea is, is pervasive. Lay aside who you used to be, the old self. Think differently so that you can put on a new self and be a different person. That sounds like change to me. That's repentance. Paul uses the language of setting aside, of putting off, of changing clothes, putting on. This change is the essence of repentance. Now, most people, I think all of us at some point here and there, more often than not sometimes and less often other times, want and desire counsel, to get counseling or to get help. Usually, though, if we, if we kind of take the veneer off, what we really, 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 let me add one more, really want is for our circumstances to change or the people around us to change. And if our circumstances and others would change, we think, man, it'd be smooth sailing. But God intends that the primary changes in our world, in our lives, take place in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own behavior. In his excellent book, Repentance, the First Word of the Gospel, Richard Owen Roberts writes this. 
It is impossible to go in two directions at once. We either turn from our way and go Christ's way, or we go our way and do not follow Christ, end quote. It's quite a statement. He's saying there's only two ways to live and two directions to go. You, you can't simultaneously be following Christ and following your own lustful impulses. In a penetrating passion, Jesus taught that only a few will make the choice to follow him, and the many will choose otherwise. Matthew 13, excuse me, 7 verse 13 says, Jesus, into the Sermon on the Mount, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Four. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few, few that find it. A few verses later, he says, It's actually possible to be on the broad road to destruction while thinking that you're possibly on the narrow road to heaven and be so self-deluded that you make it all the way to the judgment, thinking you're going to walk into heaven only to be dismissed into an eternal hell from the gate of heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This picture is you're at the gate of heaven, and you call him Lord twice with affection. Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm one of yours. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, there's our words, word again, many, many will say to me on that day, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out many demons, and in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice. You didn't change. You didn't change. You who practice lawlessness or sin. That's Paul's focus. That's Paul's point here in Ephesians chapter 4. He began the chapter with a call for all us as Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Axios, worthy. Walk. Let your life imitate your confession. That's the point. Then in verse 17, he told us that the contrast of a worthy walk is set up against the way these Ephesian believers used to walk or we used to walk when we were unbelievers. He calls them Gentiles. So this I say, verse 17, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, used to, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the, then he gives a list, futility of their mind, darkening their understanding, and on and on. But you, verse 20, didn't learn Christ this way. We looked at that last week. If indeed you've heard him, been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus now, beginning in verse 22, he will begin a class, an instruction on how to change as a believer. How do you change? 
The biblical process of change, listen, is simple, but it's not easy. You must believe that repentance, that change, is both necessary as well as beneficial, or you'll never do it. Listen, there's no other way to say it. You, you are your life's project. You are your life's project. You're your life's work. This means living life on purpose, with purpose. This means actively reflecting on who you are, who you were, who you're becoming. This means becoming an expert on repentance, an expert on change, committing your time and your effort to your own growth, your own change. Ultimately, change is only possible when your concentration is on changing yourself more than changing others and more than changing your circumstances. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to sit in Paul's classroom and learn better how to truly, genuinely, biblically change. There are three parts of God's plan for genuine change explained here in these three verses. Each verse has an imperative, something you're to do. Put off, think differently, put on. That's basically what he says. Three, three main verbs. We'll look at each of these three parts over the next three weeks. But let me give you a little, little preview of the whole passage, then we'll come back and isolate our attention on just point one for today. Three parts of God's plan for genuine change. The first is forsaking your past. The second is transforming your mind. And the third is consecrating your life. Now, please notice that these are participles and not uh, uh, simple imperatives. What, what do you mean by that? Forsaking your past is something you're always doing. Transforming your mind is something that's always happening. It's not one and done. Consecrating your life, becoming holy. In his words, righteous and holy, something you're always doing. So those, the tense of those participles is important. Forsaking, transforming, consecrating so for our time today, I just want us to look at the, the first, which is the negative side. Now, now, full disclosure, this will be pretty heavy and negative today. It gets very much more encouraging and uh, more um, uh, looking forward beginning next week. Let's look today at what it means to forsake your past. Three parts of God's plan for genuine change. The first is forsaking your past. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you take off or you lay aside the old you, the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Just as in verse 17, he points to the past. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't be like you were. Now he says, in, former, in reference to the way you were, the former manner of your life, your past. That's a simple statement that assumes the necessity to change. Christians are different than they were before they came to Christ. But we live in a time where it is difficult to talk about sin that's because we live in a culture that is redefining sin almost by the hour. It's redefining virtue almost by the hour and calling virtue sin and sin virtue. Nothing new. 
We've seen this several times in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. So the first thing to do to think about in the process of biblical change is to identify that we need to change, to to admit that. Do, Do you believe that? He says, put off, take off, leave behind the old self and its characteristics. What is that? It's an unbelieving mind and an unbelieving behavior. What you believe about God determines what you believe about yourself. What you believe about yourself determines what you believe about sin. And what you believe about sin will determine what you believe about salvation and spiritual growth. They're all linked together. Let me go through that again. What you believe about God determines what you believe about yourself. We start with Him. What you believe about yourself determines what you believe about sin. And what you believe about sin determines what you believe about salvation and what you believe about spiritual growth. Look back to verse 22. In reference to the way you were, your former manner of life, your before Christian self, that you lay aside that old self. Lay it aside, throw it away, walk away from it, change clothes from it, don't be the same. And then he says this, which is being corrupted. Now that's interesting. When God saves a person, he doesn't just take them out of the kingdom of darkness, place them into the kingdom of light with, without any consequential, what we call harmardiological hangover, sinful hangover. You, you come into a new life and it's not like you're, oh, I'm perfect now. Well, don't we wish that was the case? We're still fighting unredeemed humanness the rest of our lives. We're still fighting the old self that still wants to woo us back. Lloyd Jones talks about we've been put into a new field, but the voices from the old field still say, come, come play at our field. Paul says that old self is being, still being, even as a believer, it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Corruption, interesting word, means to destroy, to ruin, to spoil, to poison. This verse gives us the clue to understand sin's corruptive nature and its power in the next phrase, which is this. It's being corrupted. How? In accordance with, according to, the strong desires, the desires, the lusts of lying, the lusts that lie, the lust of deceit. Said another way, it's being corrupted by sin that is constantly lying to you. Our sinful desires are liars, and they lie daily, they lie hourly, they lie moment by moment. It's pretty simple. Sin whispers and shouts, and it says, if you'll participate in me, in this sin, you'll be happy. It'll make you satisfied, bring you satisfaction. It'll promise a wonderful life. A fulfilling life. And here's what's, what's really scary about that is it does sometimes make you happy and satisfied for a moment. 
But as the book of Ecclesiastes teaches, it doesn't last. How does sin lie to us? You don't, there's nothing new here. Our first parents fell by being lied to and believing the lie. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this whole thing is just really always just strikes me as interesting. They're walking around the garden. They see this tree with a serpent. The serpent starts talking and they start talking back. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? By the way, that's the first question in the Bible. It's the first interrogative in the Bible. And it's by Satan actually challenging the perspicuity or the clarity of God and his word. Has God really said, you shall not treat, eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, which is, again, just, she talks back. From the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, we could spend a lot of time in this text, but two things rise to the surface that I want you to see. They believed Satan's lie that sin would bring them a better life than obedience. Satan said, I know you think you're enjoying everything in the garden, but if you will do what I say, if you will sin, life will be better and get better. And they believed it. Secondly, they believed lies about God and his character. That he was holding back, that he wasn't good, that he wasn't benevolent. They believed that God's character to ask his son and daughter for obedience was somehow for their bad. So they believed the lie that sin would make them happy and they believed that the lie that God was holding back from them by keeping them from sinning. Exactly the same protocol as today. Exactly. So what I want to do over the next few minutes is going to be fast. This is going to be probably feel more like a biblical counseling class than a sermon, but I want us to dissect what it means to change. These are things that the Bible lays out that I I try to implement in my own life, not perfectly and not nearly enough, honestly. But this is what we need to do to follow a process for change, which is repentance. And God calls all men everywhere to do that, right? To repent. So I'm going to give you a list. They all have as their object it, personalize it. It is the sin, sinful thinking, the old self. What the old self does to offend God is sin. So let's, how do we deal with sin? Let me give you a list. First of all, personalize it. Personalize it. By that, you have to go back to verse 20 and 21. If, but you did not learn Jesus Christ, Christ himself, the, the Savior in this way. Christianity is about a relationship with him. In other words, sin is always a personal offense against our loving 
God and Savior. It's personal. It's not an abstraction. Sin is not an abstract action. It's a personal offense against a holy God. A holy God who's so serious about his, our sin that he killed his son to cover it. Sin is personal. We have to personalize it. It's not just an abstract, I did something wrong. Thomas Goodwin says, great Puritan preacher, the indwelling of Christ by faith is to have Jesus Christ continually in one's eye, a habitual sight of him. I call it so because a man actually does not always think of Christ, but as man does not look up to the sun continually, he sees the light of it. So you should carry along and bear along in your eye the sight and the knowledge of Christ so that at least a presence of him accompanies you, which faith makes. The presence of him accompanies you. So we see that sin is against him personally and it grieves us because it grieves him. The reverse principle is, well, is true as well. Thomas Watson says, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So you can see how your view of Christ influences your view of sin. Your view of sin will stain your view of Christ if you're treasuring it. Personalize it. See sin as a violation, a cosmic offense against a holy, loving, good, righteous God. Secondly, identify it. Call it out. Identifying the internal and external corruption is to be our constant habit that we see in our lives. You can't change what you don't recognize. You can't change what you don't see needs to be changed. So how can you see your sin? I mean, that doesn't sound like a great prospect, does it? All right, go look for your sin. But you won't change it unless you identify it. I was just reading this week in James. How do you see sin? God gives us some very clear ways to recognize, identify, be aware of our sin. Listen to James 1. The first way to recognize sin, by the way, is to read Scripture. To read your Bible. James chapter 1, verse 21. Putting aside all filthiness. This sounds like putting off, doesn't it? Putting aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the word of God, the scriptures, the law of liberty, abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what? He does. You ever gone to the mirror, maybe after a meal, and noticed you had food on your face? Uh, unfortunately, I've done that. I, you know, something splashed up my cheek or something, and, and, and you see it, and you go, oh, okay. And then you go back to your dinner guest. I mean, that's silly, isn't it? 
That's the illustration. You don't see an adjustment that needs to be made and don't make it. Maybe gone to the mirror and see your collar flipped up. I am so OCD about collars. I will, if I'm in church, I'll reach over six rows to fix your collar. It just bothers me. But you don't see a collar flipped up and go, oh, style. And you walk out, you fix it. The point of a mirror is adjusting. James is saying the point of looking in the word of God is to see yourself as you are because you've seen God as he is and there are adjustments that need to be made. So you read scripture. That's how you identify sin. Secondly, by your conscience. If you're a Christian, your conscience gets turned on in a way that it wasn't as an unbeliever. You know what's right and wrong. It's not that, that little conscience that says this is not the best or this is not right. Listen to it. A third reason, by others' confrontation and correction. Praise God for others who care enough about us to correct us and to confront us. It's a means of grace that someone can say, listen, can we talk about something I see in your life? A fourth way, by reading good Christian literature. I was reading a book this week and saw some things in my life because of the things I was reading. Just read good books. That's why we have recommended reading always going on at our church And then lastly, by answered prayer, by prayer. If you are brave enough to ask your Lord, Father, will you show me by the means of grace that you've given, my study of scripture, my my listening to others, my my conscience, my my reading, will you show me areas of sin from which I need to repent? God loves to answer that prayer. Are you brave enough to ask it? Identify it. You can't change what you don't recognize. Thirdly, or letter C, unmask it. This comes right out of the verse. Unmask it. Paul's point is that sin is lying to you. Sin is in disguise. It's disguising itself as satisfying desires, satisfying actions, satisfying thoughts. But it's a lie. Lies of deceit, the, the, the lust of deceit, rather. If sin is lying to us, we should be adept and experts at taking off its disguise, taking off its mask. Sin lies about its nature. Sin lies about its consequences. Sin lies about God's character. So we are to be spiritual detectives, always looking, at, looking for, rather, the disguise, the mask needs to be ripped off sin to see its heinous nature, its horrific offense to God, and its unintended consequences. Unmask the lies. Just ask yourself, is is my pursuit of sin, what I want out of it, is it true? Is it going to satisfy and fulfill me? And the answer will always be no. Letter D, number four, own it. Own it. Now, let me say something before we talk about this a moment. I want to be very careful. There are no doubt what we would frame victims, we call victims of sinful actions and sinful people. Some people are brutal and cruel and abusive to people, and that's horrific. And that's sin that we hope that they would repent of. But Paul's point here is not to talk about people who've sinned against us. 
Paul's point here is to pursue our own sin before we pursue the sins of others. Jesus said, deal with a log in your eye before trying to remove the speck in someone else's, Matthew 7, 3. It is good and redemptive to see the wrong in your own heart, the wrong in your own actions. Why? Because only then can you see what needs to be addressed in repentance and to say, this is on me. I have have no excuses. Oh, we're so good at finding excuses for our sin, aren't we? I mean, all the way back to Flip Wilson. Some of you old enough to remember Flip Wilson? What did he say? The devil made me do it? No, no. Own it. Which will lead you, letter E, to hating it. Hate it. Hate it. The most basic question of repentance is determining if we hate or if we love our sin. Do you hate it or do you love it? Are you fleeing it or are you pursuing it? Are you treating it as a a coddled pet? Are you treating it as a venomous snake? Remember Paul's familiar self-evaluation? For what I'm doing, Romans 7, 15. I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to, but I am doing the very thing I hate. He hated sin. Do you hate it? Go back to the beginning. You will never hate it unless it's personal, unless you see it as offensive to God against his nature. And then he goes on through verse 25 of Romans 7 to talk about the good I want to do, I don't do, I do the very thing I don't want to do, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? And his conclusion is what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hate it? Or do you love it? Do you justify it? Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, said, Look upon sin in its nature, and it will appear very hateful. See how Scripture has penciled it out. It is a dishonoring of God, Romans 2, 2, 25. A despising of God, 1 Samuel 2, 30. A fretting of God, Ezekiel 16, 43. A wearying of God, Isaiah 7, 13. A breaking of the heart of God, Ezekiel 6, 9. Sin, when acted to the height, is a, is a crucifying of Christ afresh and putting him to open shame, Hebrews 6.6. 6. That is, imprudent sinners pierce Christ and his saints, and were now he upon the earth, they would likely crucify him again in his person, end quote. Do... Does sin appear to you as hateful? Do you hate it? If you will ever find victory over sin, if you will ever find true biblical change, it will only come when you make the decision to hate your sin more than you love it. And that hatred will only come when your sin is considered in the light of the Son of God who gave himself as a sacrifice for that sin. So you've personalized it, identified it, unmasked it, owned it, 
You hate it. What do you do next? Confess it. Take it to the omniscient, omnipresent Lord who already knows about it. Let him know that you know what he knows. Confession happens when excuses are abandoned. We can say it this way. True confession only happens when all excuses are abandoned. It's connected to owning it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a grace. After his heinous sin with Bathsheba, David said, Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. In other words, what you confess, what you uncover, God will cover. But what you cover, be very careful because God will uncover that. Next, letter G. Stop it. <laughs> I see the smiles. I, I am familiar with the little Bob Newhart sketch who is, tells this lady, his, his, the sum of his counsel is, stop it. Well, it's Paul's and Peter's as well. Stop it. Ultimately, repentance and change come down to action. We must stop the sinful actions, stop the sinful thinkings. Thinking The New Testament writers are, are, are adamant. They're not shy about this. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Pretty simple. 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Stop it. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Stop it, he says. 1 John 6, 1 verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't walk in the darkness. Stop it. Titus 2.12, the gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously godly in the present age. Stop acting ungodly. The parallel passage of this, Colossians 3.5, therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these that the wrath of God will come upon the, saints, the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once, past tense, used to walk when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Stop it, he says. How about this for a stop it verse? 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality. Stop it. 
Ephesians 5.3, but immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. And there's one more. Well, there's lots more. I want to give you one more. Romans 13.14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no strategy, plan, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, have a plan for putting off and putting on. Don't have a plan to sin. Personalize it. Identify it. Unmask it. Own it. Hate it. Confess it. Stop it. And there are two more that I'm not going to get to today, and you'll see why. Rethink it. Think rightly about sin and replace it. And that's verse 23 and 24. So we'll come back to that in our next study. So let me take you back just for a moment to where we began. Folks, believers, brothers, sisters, are you, are you, you, are you your life's project? Are you your life's work? Are you being diligent about changing? about putting off, and we'll get to putting on, but are you being diligent to understand this process of identifying sin and stopping it, crucifying it, mortifying it is what the Puritans call it, mortifying your sin. Are you your life's project? Let me ask you again, are you an expert on repentance? Are you an expert changer? Do you know how to change? Let me say at this point that this process of change is incomplete after verse 22 because you have to change your thinking in verse 23, which leads to putting on righteousness and holiness in verse 24. They all come together. But it's good for us to understand what it means to put off and to stop. And are you aware of the sins of your pre-Christian past that God is calling you to be in the process of forsaking. Are you a forsaker, repenter, changer? We keep coming back to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, New things have come. Does this reflect the passion of your life that you want to move from the old to the new? You don't want to walk as an unbeliever, but as a child, a son, a daughter of God. Do you understand how to do that? It's no amount of willpower that's going to do this. But it's us cooperating, it's an interesting word, cooperating with the Spirit of God who empowers us, but also calls us to mortify our desires, our sinful desires. Let me encourage you that if you'll apply your effort to true biblical change, the Holy Spirit will be there at every single 
instant to supply what you need to do so. But it means dying to self. And that's never painless. But the joy of walking with the Lord brings such satisfaction. Knowing that you're hearing now and will hear in the future, well done, good and faithful servant. That goes back to personalizing it at the very beginning. Are you your life's project? Are you working on yourself? I understand circumstances and, and others, we wish those would change, and, and they might, and they might not. But are you your life's project for biblical change? That's forsaking the past. The next step is learning how to think rightly about the past and the future and the present. How do you think rightly? You, you're renewed in the spirit of your thinking, of your mind. And that's verse 23. And then that's not enough because then you need to know how to act in righteousness and holiness of the truth, which is the bookend of that. And then he's going to give us the rest of the chapter on illustrations and applications of how you can do that. The sufficiency of God's word, it probably shouldn't surprise me, but it's always a wonderful surprise when you see how, how much it supplies. So be your own project. Be your life's work on putting off, thinking rightly, and putting on.